The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Wednesday, the 2nd of February. Professor Guy Marks continues to provide us with evidence-based facts regarding Omicron to help us cut through the political and media spin. Professor Marks, tell us about yourself. Thank you for inviting me to participate, and I'm very happy to be here. I'm, I'm a, a respiratory physician, and I'm an epidemiologist and a public health physician. I work at Liverpool Hospital in Southwest Sydney, mainly now dealing, in fact, with tuberculosis. Uh, I'm also part the president of the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease, which is now 100 years old. It's the oldest global public health organisation. As a respiratory physician and epidemiologist, of course, I've been interested in, and engaged with this major problem that we have now with COVID. Now, um, Guy, I, I would like to just say at the beginning that a lot of us are hearing messages about this pandemic, which actually sounds really quite optimistic uh, that somehow we seem to be over the worst of it and that uh, in time to come, uh, we can expect life to sort of get back to a reasonable normality. But as a doctor, when I keep hearing lots of voices that sound the same, I'm really concerned that I'm not hearing other perspectives because I always believe that there should be a debate and a true understanding of things so that doctors can make our own understanding, if you like, of the situation. The, the reason why this is so important is because what I believe and understand and therefore what I'm told will directly impact not just my behaviour, but what I will tell my patients. So, um, Guy, just over to you. Um, and how do we look at the COVID situation, taking away the rose-coloured lenses? Yeah, I think it's a very good point, David. Uh, look, I, I think that anybody who, including me, who tries to tell you that they know what is going to happen in the future with COVID should not be believed. I mean, we do not know what is going to happen in the future with COVID. We do not know uh, that it's going to get better or that it's going to get worse. And throughout the course of the pandemic has continued to surprise us. And nobody really has been able to predict the future beyond a very short term. And many predictions have been shown to have been incorrect. So the first thing to say is that I'm not here to tell you that I can predict the future. I can't. I don't know what is going to happen, but I also know that those who are telling you that it's going to get better and that this is the end of it, you know, there is no basis for those predictions. There's no solid scientific basis to say that it is just going to disappear if we do nothing further. And that we, I'm hearing people saying, you know, that, that Omicron is going is the last of the waves and it's going to go away uh, and that we don't need to do anything further and that we should just get on with life and forget about the pandemic. Well, that I think is an extraordinarily optimistic scenario. It's possible that it could be true, but all of the evidence that I've seen so far would suggest that it's unlikely to be true. 
I don't say that it can't happen, but I think it's unlikely to be true. I'm also moderately optimistic, but only moderately optimistic. And, and I, the reason that I'm optimistic is that I think that there are things that can be done that will help us to control the pandemic and may eventually bring an end to it. But uh, I don't think we have all of the tools that we need yet to bring an end to the pandemic. I do think we have tools available to us that can help us to mitigate the impact of it, but they will require us to take some actions and to utilise those tools uh, and to cooperate <laughs> and to recognise that uh, we need to do things to, to control the pandemic. Wishful thinking is not going to is not going to solve the pandemic. Guy, what sort of tools are you referring to? Well, clearly the, the most important tool, the tool that will most benefit is, is vaccination. Um, it's a viral respiratory uh, infection for which it is possible to amount a humoral immune response and vaccination is crucial. We have been, in, you know, in, as everybody knows, in world record time had delivered effective vaccines that were capable of, of preventing to a very large extent the severe consequences of infection. And people who receive that vaccine, hugely protected, not completely protected, but substantially protected against severe adverse health effects, including the, the severe pneumonitis and the risk of death from COVID. Uh, what we have increasingly recognised is that there are major limitations in the existing vaccines, um, and they can be divided really into two parts. Uh, one is that mutations in the virus, the ar arrival of variants, allows uh, escape from what's called immune invasion, essentially that the vaccine and in fact previous infection, the immunity derived from previous infections is no longer protective because the new virus looks different. Uh, and the immunity either from the vaccine or from previous infection doesn't con confer protection. So that is one and that can be overcome to some extent by two things. One is by generating new specific vaccines. And there is one that is expected from both Pfizer and Moderna in March that will be effective against Omicron. And the other way in which it can be overcome is by what's called pan-coronavirus vaccines. Vaccines that are not susceptible to the variation uh, that happens over time with the virus that affect that are effective against all vaccines that is apparently more difficult to achieve but people are working on that so that's one area immune evasion and escape due to evolution of the virus the 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 other area in which it's been apparent that the vaccine the existing vaccines are deficient is that they don't adequately prevent transmission they don't adequately prevent a person from acquiring the virus and, for, and also from spreading the virus to another person. And that, it turns out, probably requires more, more potent mucosal immunity. The immunity that we're getting is, is humoral immunity that, that exists, it's, it's systemic, but we need immunity at the, muc at the respiratory mucosa, particularly in the upper respiratory tract, where the transmission is actually happening, where it's, where it's spread from and where it's received to. And so that is likely to be achieved by nasally administered vaccines, 
that actually generate an immune response in the upper respiratory mucosa. And that is also being worked on. And there are vaccines in trials that, that, that will help. So those are the two directions in which vaccination will be helpful. So vaccination is the core of what I think needs to be done. I think there are other elements that where we know that we can do things uh, where we have an imperfect vaccine. When, if we had the imperfect vaccine, then vaccination alone would be sufficient if everybody took it. But since not everybody is taking it and we don't have the perfect vaccine, we need to do other things as well. And the two key parts of that uh, relate to the known aerosol transmission of the virus. And that is uh, improving ventilation in, in indoor environments so that the, the concentration of the virus in indoor environment is much lower by just improving air exchange rates and ventilation and air filtration and purification and so on. And secondly, by wearing what's called respirators or colloquially called masks, but but more, more accurately called respirators that both prevent expulsion of virus from a person who has the virus and prevent uh, inhalation of virus from a person who is at risk. And that is, they need to be uh, well-fitted N95 or P2 respirators. And that is achievable uh, and not particularly burdensome. So those are the tools I think that we have at the moment that I think can at least mitigate the virus and in the future, I think, would help us to lead to elimination. But we don't have yet the tools that can allow us to bring about elimination. So sorry for the very long answer. No, no, it's really important. Now, you made some really important points about the importance of ventilation uh, of indoor environments. Now, I'm just thinking that as a person who sometimes has to go into a, an indoor environment to buy things that I need, I check in. So I, I tell people I'm coming in here. There are no uh, capacities now, and I have no idea what the ventilation is. I mean, what's how hard is it for shops to tell us about what ventilation they have for air purifiers or indeed uh, have a, a CO2 concentrator that tells us there are too many people in there, don't go in now. Would these sorts of things help? I think, uh, you know, better regulation and, and, uh, and both voluntary and regulation-based uh, approaches to improving uh, the ventilation in indoor spaces is, is a direction in which we need to go. And, and there are people who are working on this. It's one of those things that seems to take a long time, but it, it, it's one of the things that we needed, that the pandemic should have focused us on. You know, we should be focusing on the need to have safe air. There are actually a whole lot of other reasons why we need safe air. The pandemic has just focused our mind on it. But, you know, the indoor environment is, is the source of other uh, adverse exposures for us, including other infectious diseases, actually. So other respiratory infections that are not as serious as the pandemic, like influenza, like the common cold and so on, not as serious as COVID, but nevertheless do cause morbidity. And improving uh, the quality and safety of indoor air would, would, would be a benefit. And that, that sort of things, like what you're alluding to, need to be you know factored into the way in which we regulate our indoor lives. And Guy, harping back to what you had said way back at the beginning, 
it, it would seem to me that there seems to be two divergent um, streams or perspectives of this COVID pandemic, the ones who are more cautious and the ones who are clearly more optimistic. It's very evident now, but has it always been like that? And will there ever be a time when our medical experts might come to some degree of consensus? I remain optimistic on that, <laughs> that there may be some consensus. I would say I have observed since the onset of the, since, you know, right back at the beginning in January 2020, that there's been this divergence of views, uh, you know, um, a view that, that it wasn't going to be as bad as that we thought it would be, that it would be all over by Easter, that we, you know, should we need to worry about other things, we shouldn't distract ourselves from other things. And another view, which, if you remember, was looking at the tidal wave that was overcoming northern Italy and, and, and New York and Wuhan and thinking, you know, if it can happen there, it can happen here and we need to be ready for this and this is going to be a major thing. This is the big one. And, and, and those sort of divergent views were, were evident right from the beginning. And I don't know what it says about human nature. I guess it says... It says something about human nature that people who are more expert in human nature than I am could could co could comment on. But it is something that I just, as, as an observer, and, and and you, I think also as an observer, uh, could see. Uh, and I think it's still the case, you know, that there is a, a a strand which believes that things are going to get better. It's not as bad as it seems, and and so on. And others who want to try and look at prepare for what's going to happen and, and try and be active and not assume that it's just going to get better if we uh, let it let it go. Guy, I just wonder whether this sorts of thinking um, might be behind the fact that in nearly every major strategic decision, Australia had been caught on the back foot or finding ourselves always at the back of the queue. Yes, well, that is sadly the case. I think that, you know, people have been optimistic that we didn't need to take major decisions. Generally, the failure to take those major decisions has caught us off guard. I mean, having said that, we did do some things very well. Some of the control measures that were implemented in 2020 did significantly delay the arrival of the pandemic. And in fact, we in fact eliminated it in New South Wales and in Victoria on several occasions when small epidemics arrived in Australia and, and there were at waves and we did eliminate it and we eliminated it by aggressive public health actions actually before we had a vaccine, if you recall. In 2020, the elimination happened on several occasions just by using public health measures um, and, and that was effective. So we did do some things, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, that were very effective and that demonstrated this. And, and, and other countries in this region did the same, in Taiwan, in Singapore, in, in, in Hong Kong, and in China, in fact. Um, you know, they actually were able to use, and in Vietnam, that's the other place I think is worthwhile mentioning. In all of those countries, prior to the arrival of the vaccine, they used public health measures to control the spread of the vaccine and showed that that could be done. Uh, and uh, it was hard, and we, uh, but we did it. And we saved a lot of lives, and we saved a lot of disruption, in fact, by doing that.
I just want to come back to this point about aggressive public health measures because it was working and we all remembered the times uh, we felt safe, really. Now, um, knowing that they work, how do we find ourselves in this position at the moment? And why is it that public health measures seemed just so inconvenient and so, so easy to get rid of so quickly? Well, they were inconvenient for people and there is a balance uh, to be had here. We need to do things that work, and, and they did work at that time. They work when you have sort of the, the things that we're able to do, border controls, uh, track and trace, um, and re re reduced social interaction with various things. And it's the reduced social interaction, frankly, which I think caused people the most discomfort and most difficulty. And they worked at a point when there were a relatively small number of cases and it was possible to lay. We now have a virus, Omicron, which has been essentially gone beyond the point at which those sort of measures, border controls uh, and reduced social interaction are going to make much difference. And tra even track and trace isn't going to make much difference at this point in time. The sorts of things that will make a difference at this point of time are the things that I was alluding to earlier uh, of improved ventilation and mm -hmm. wearing effective uh, N95 respirators and improving vaccination coverage. They're the things that will make a difference where we are now in the pandemic. I mean, I think what we need is we need to evolve over time with the pandemic. We need to respond to the current status of the pandemic at this time and, and use interventions that are effective at this point in time, interventions that were effective at a different point in the ep epidemic, they were relevant then. So I, I don't think it's not a one size fits all is as I think what I'm saying. And the other thing is the evolution of the technologies and the evolution of knowledge, you know, that we will get better vaccines and that will make life easier and we can reduce other controls that we need to use. I mean, ultimately, it would be great to have a vaccine that is effective enough and used widely enough that we don't have to worry about masks uh, for, for, for at least for, for COVID. Speaking of vaccinations, Guy, what sorts of conversations should we be having with parents of school-aged kids? Uh, because I, I think that for some people, this is a highly emotive issue. And even to the point where a GP had been threatened with uh, death threats, really, uh, and falsely accused that children had died in his waiting room. So I, I, I'm seeing things happen in Australia that never happened before because it's so emotive. So how do we carry on a very reasonable conversation about benefits and risks uh, with parents? So look, I don't want to put myself up as an expert on vaccination in children and I'm not, but from what I understand about the vaccine is that it has been very widely used and has been shown to be safe while the virus causes less problems in children than it seems to in adults, it does still cause uh, illness in children and the benefits of vaccination. And some of those effects are not yet clearly established, the, the effects of the virus. It looks to me from where we sit now that the benefits of vaccination greatly outweigh the risks 
and the benefits in terms of protecting children against potential adverse effects greatly outweigh the risks of vaccination in children. That would be my view. But you're right that there's been a huge amount of emotion and, and misinformation mm. being spread. I don't want to add to that. I, I think, you know, I, I'm giving you what my view is on the, the relative benefit, risks and benefits. I, I'm not putting myself up as an expert in this field. Yeah. Um, okay, a point you brought up, and it's a point that I only heard of very recently, is that we still don't really know uh, what the long-term effects of catching uh, the COVID viruses, even Omicron being supposedly mild, uh, you said that we it's not clearly established what some of the effects are. Do you have any idea or are there signals of what might happen down the road? Look, I, I think it looks like the, the evidence would suggest that if you have very mild initial disease that the, or, or no symptoms initially, that you're unlikely to have severe long-term consequences and that the severe consequences of the disease happen mainly in people who have a, a severe initial episode of disease. And that seems to be what's being seen. But the reality is that the the sort of life course epidemiology of this disease is it, it, because it's a novel disease, is not yet fully established. Uh, and I think that there are still things to be learned about it. You know, I think that doesn't mean we need to catastrophize about it. It also does mean we need to be wary mm -hmm. and, and, and open to um, knowledge about it. I think we need to strike an appropriate balance between on the one hand, catastrophizing and on the other hand, hugely minimizing what the risks are. And, and I, I think, you know, we need to have an open mind and, and be aware that that there are long-term effects in some people and we don't fully understand that. We don't fully understand uh, how to mitigate those. But there is concern that being expressed in some circles that we may be having you know, a large burden of long-term consequences for health that are not yet fully understood. But again, I, I don't want to overstate the importance of that because I don't think we yet know about it. Mm -hmm. what, 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 what it comes down to is that we, you know, it's going to be in our interest to do everything we can mm -hmm. in reason to try and put downward pressure on the spread of this virus, yep. to do what we can to, to reduce the spread of this virus. That's going to be in our interest, both in the short term and likely in the, in the long term as well. And um, all of the things that, that, you know, I talked about earlier are things that we need to do. I, I hear a voice of concern there in the sense, Guy, is that, um, you know, you're pretty much saying, look, uh, just because Omicron's small, don't go and have a party and catch it now just because you think it's all easy and it's a walk in the park. No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, it, it, that would be a very foolish thing to do. Some people are having severe consequences. Our hospitals are overloaded. <laughs> Are bursting at the seams with mainly who have Omicron. Some of them still have Delta, but a lot of them have Omicron and some of them are getting very sick. Um, and, you know, obviously there are lots of people who have it and who don't get very sick, but there are many people who are getting it who are getting very sick. And, um, and so you don't want to be one of those people and you can't guarantee that you aren't going to be one of those people if you get it. So you should, you know, again, I, I'm trying to sort of, steer a middle course here. It's not a catastrophe. If you get it, it's not a catastrophe, but it's not something you want to try and get. <laughs> Absolutely not.
I, I like the analogy of wearing a seatbelt. I mean, it keeps me safe in a car crash, but I don't need to get into a car crash just to prove it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, now, just a quick question. You, you did mention that we, we may be able to get away with going back to school. The use of uh, rapid antigen testing in the school setting is a good idea, Guy? Look, I think there's been a huge emphasis on rapid antigen testing, and I think they 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 do have a role. I, I didn't talk about that in the mid. You know, I think they're a sort of secondary prevention tool. They're not frontline of prevention, but yes, I think they do have a role in in helping us to control the spread of the disease. The more widespread the disease is, the less useful it is. In fact. They're not 100% sensitive, particularly in asymptomatic patients. So you can re, you know, you can still get patient, people who have the virus and probably can still spread it who have a negative test on rapid antigen. I think they have a role, but I wouldn't want to overstate the role of the rapid antigen tests. Okay. Yeah. Could, could you very briefly explain what you meant by the more widespread the disease, the less useful it is? Well, I think the more widespread the disease is, the more likely is that you'll get some false negatives tests. And so the negative predictive value of the test is, is lower. It is more likely that uh, you will be falsely reassured by a negative test and therefore be more likely to continue to spread the, the, the virus. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. And combine that with the fact that it is not highly, if you like, always sensitive, especially in the asymptomatic I, I get the uh, reading between the lines. What you're saying is that it can give a, a false sense of security. That's what I'm saying. And that's why, you know, I think we need to do more of the sort of, if you like, we used to talk about universal precautions. You essentially need to take those sort of universal precautions that, I, that, are, that affect everyone and assume everybody has the virus and therefore everybody should be wearing the N95 respirator when they're in contact with other people, either they're in an indoor environment or in a crowded outdoor environment, and until we have more effective vaccination. Guy, this has been an incredibly helpful uh, discussion with you. It really does set the middle course, if you like, for us mm -hmm. to consider. Are, are there any particular key issues or messages you'd like to uh, give to our GP listeners? Well, look, I think my view is that I, I think that the GPs are at the front line, as always, in these sort of major issues. This has been a huge challenge to everyone um, and a massive challenge to primary care medical workforce. It's going to go on for a longer time, I suspect. You know, I would like to think that this is going to come to an end, but I suspect we're going to be dealing with it still for quite some time. I am optimistic in the sort of intermediate term that we will get control of this, but it's still going to require some work. Um, and we don't yet have all of the tools that we need to, to, to control the virus. I would say that I am, I've had nothing to do with this, so I can say it. And I'm proud of the things that colleagues have done in developing uh, new technology and, and, and new innovations that I think will, and, and are continuing to do, uh, and I, I think that it's been a, a great achievement. Um, and, but what we need now is to take these matters seriously, to deploy them widely, to make sure that everybody um, has access to them. And, and the last thing I'm say, perhaps not directly relevant to GPs, but we are not going to solve this one country at a time. You know, Australia cannot solve this on, a, on, a, on our own. 
we need a global solution. And, and the evidence for that is how wide, how rapidly new variant, the initial virus, and then new variants are spreading around the world. Mm. And so basically to coin a phrase about other things, COVID anywhere is COVID everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and we need to solve this for the whole world, not just for any one country at a time. We're not going to be able to solve it in Australia alone. And, and I think you're alluding to uh, vaccine inequity and the need to vaccinate the globe. Yeah, and vaccinate and uh, but or any other. You know, we didn't talk about treatments actually, but, okay. uh, and treatments may have some role in preventing. The, the spread of this disease and if, if they do turn out to have a role then access to those will be important access to masks or respirators will be important <laughs> access to all of the technologies that are required to control this disease will need to be equitable a quick word on um, the subvariant ba2 something to not worry about or keep an eye on absolutely we need to keep keep an eye on all of these things um, and and it will just be another variant i mean that's the thing that is happening that new variant it's evolving very rapidly this virus again i'm not an expert in virus evolution and i don't pretend to fully understand it but i can observe what's been happening and that what I, what has been happening is that the virus has been evolving very rapidly and there's no no evidence to suggest that that evolution has stopped the other thing i think that is that there is no evidence to suggest that the evolution of the virus will inevitably lead to milder versions of the virus. That that has been a common thread in some of these sort of more optimistic views, but that the there is no evidence to support that view. And I think it's very dangerous to assume that that is what's going to happen, that the next variant will be milder. You know, it may be, but it may not be. Mm. And, and anybody who tells you they know what the next variant is going to be like, I, I don't think be believed. I think the two things that are being, if you like, bented around, but not everyone understands it, is that we have to live with it. It's going to be endemic and then it's going to be mild. Uh, that seems to be the story that is being told at the moment. It is the story that's being told. I think people are saying it's going to be endemic, maybe are not fully understanding what that means. Uh, yes, it's likely that there will continue to be there. In, for the time being in small numbers, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to have continued waves, epidemics, if you like, mm-hmm. and widespread epidemics, pandemics. So, you know, so what I think, you know, we are going to have waves of pandemic, I think, continued. There's no reason to suggest that that's going to stop until we can do something that we're not doing now, until we can control it more effectively. And as I say, the, the view that it will continue to get more mild. I'm not sure where that comes from. And I'm not sure, that, I mean, I don't believe there is evidence that that is what's going to happen. It may be, but I don't believe that that is what, that there's evidence that strongly supports that. Just before I let you go, uh, the sense that the peak is over almost sounds as if, oh goodness, uh, well, very soon things will be back to normal. I did hear a voice of caution uh, on the news last night when, I forget which minister did say that the fact that the peak may be over doesn't mean that the um, the wave is over. So uh, when people start talking about the peak being over, how should we speak to them? There's two issues there. One is the wave itself. Okay, you get past the peak and then the wave 
goes on for some time. So we will still be dealing with Omicron, this wave, for some little time, I think. Not, hopefully not too much longer, but, but we still will be dealing with this wave. But the problem with COVID has been that each wave has been followed by another wave. <laughs> um, and that, and we've, each time it's ended, we've thought this is the end of it. That's not what we've observed so far. Each wave has been followed by another wave. So Omicron will probably come to an end, or this wave will come to an end. But what will happen next, we don't know. Can I summarise, therefore, what you've been trying to say uh, is that uh, you are moderately optimistic that as new types of vaccines and new types of treatment become available, we will have better and better tools to try to help us overcome this pandemic. However, we can't do it one country at a time. We have to have a global approach to end the pandemic. In the meantime, really what's helpful is vaccinations, looking and caring after ourselves, especially with good masks and being very aware of indoor ventilation issues. That's a very good summary, Dave, and I couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you. No, thank I you so agree. much for your time. I would agree with that summary exactly. Guy, it's so important to hear these messages because it's just, just another voice of caution, but a, a voice of some hope, but it's also very clear now that whilst we await those new tools, the old tools of ventilation and mask and just being very careful in getting our jabs and boosters uh, has to be the way it is. Yeah, that's right. So good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too, David. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.